Well, good morning. Um, feel free to continue conversations at the end as there'll be loads more space for us to connect with one another and get to know new people. But it's good to be together this morning. My name is Zach. I'm part of the team here. And uh, I'm going to take some time to share and continue on our sermon series this morning. But what, before I do, let me pray for us just as we continue on this morning. Father, I can thank you for the good gift of this morning and for the reminder to us of the work that you continue to do to transform lives. Would you remind us of the work that you've done in our lives as, we, as we've heard the stories of what you're doing in others? Would it renew faith in us again? And would you renew our expectancy that you want to speak to us this morning? Would you speak? Would you give us discernment of what is you and what you want to say to us this morning and what is just of me? I say in Jesus' name, amen. Yes, good morning. So it's good to be together. We are continuing in our sermon series, which lasts this year, uh, Living in the Story. And this month, we've been looking at heart stories, reflecting on this, the period in Israelite history, which was looking at kings, particularly the first three kings, Saul, David, and then today we're looking at Solomon together. In order for us to track some of Solomon's life, I'm going to start somewhere that maybe is not what you'd be expecting to start. I'm not going to, st- not going to start at the beginning. I'm going to start with this little guy. Yes, it's a great picture, isn't it? It's very nice. Why am I starting with a fox? Well, maybe see if anyone's joined the dots yet. But there are three books of the Old Testament which are attributed to Solomon, to the writings of Solomon and his wisdom. Proverbs to Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Now, Song of Solomon isn't a book that we quote from very often on a Sunday, but it has one, is one which is rich with meaning around the heart, addressing the heart and our loves. Um, it talks about love, uh, committed deep love between two people, it reflects on the love between God and his church. And also, I think because it's, it's likely informed by Solomon in some form, I think it opens up something of the wrestle within Solomon's own heart. There's a verse that's hidden away in this book, which I'm going to read to us, which I think maybe addresses some of Solomon's heart condition and also speaks directly into the life and decisions that he makes. And it's a verse in chapter two, which says this, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. So why, so what is this verse talking about? So um, this uh, foxes might seem like a bit of innocent, kind of innocuous animals. Um, and so why is it that this verse talks about foxes in vineyards? Well, actually, foxes are uh, something that vineyard owners are wary of, even up until the present day. Because while some bigger animals or birds can get into vineyards and eat at the fruit from them and maybe do a little bit of damage, when foxes sneak into a vineyard, they don't just jump for the fruit. They nibble at the base of the vine slowly until eventually it topples the whole vine and they can eat all the grapes from the vine. And so it's devastating to the crop as the fox eats as much as it wants. And what we'll find, I think, as we take some time to track Solomon's life and reign is that he didn't watch out for the little foxes. In those little moments in compromises and decisions that he made through his life, that are even easy for us to miss as we read through some of the text of Solomon's life together. But in some of those things even were acceptable things. Some of those things were um, things which um, actually came and started off as gift from God. And yet 
when he began to pursue them and not pursue God, they slowly compromised his heart and turned him away from his first love. So we're going to track Solomon's life together. And it's a bit of an ambitious task because there's a lot to say about Solomon. There's, I mean, there's three books on it and also there's about 11 chapters of First Kings all dedicated to his life. And there's lots of big things in his life. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on a few places and try and get a bit of an overview of some of his story so that we can begin to track maybe where some of these little foxes are. <laughs> and where we're going to zoom in is places where Solomon and God interact, where Solomon has encounters with God, and what we find out in the, the context within that as well. So to start at the beginning with the question, who is Solomon? Who is Solomon? Solomon is a son of David and is the son of Bathsheba, which if anyone was around last week, we know some of the story and learned again some of the story of, of everything that surrounded David and Bathsheba, of the sin and the way that David chose to possess Bathsheba. And so in many ways, Solomon is broke, born into quite a broken family environment. And in the midst of that, just after he's born, 2 Samuel 12, God speaks through the prophet Nathan directly into Solomon's life while he's still a baby and gives him a second name. It gives him the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of Yahweh. And so in the midst of this brokenness and mess, God claims Solomon as his own. And before he's done anything, he calls him beloved. And even as Naomi prayed over, um, over, over Jenna as she, as she was being baptized, that should ring true and familiar to us that the, those are the same words that God the Father speaks over Jesus, that you're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. God does this and claims Solomon at the start of his life. But then we don't hear about Solomon again until a lot later. At this point, he's an adult and David is at the end of his life and there's a bit of a mess, messy succession plan. It's very dramatic, even more so than these TV series that are out just now. It's worth reading those first two chapters of First Kings. But eventually, Solomon is named as heir and successor. And David hands on a legacy to him. He says, walk and step with God as I did. And he also kind of tags on a bit at the end, which is not great. He says, well, while you're at it, maybe just kill all my enemies, which is not a great way for him to start as king, but Solomon does decide to do that. So chapter two is filled with lots of assassination plans. And then we reach 1 Kings chapter three, and he starts to rule Israel. And he's seeking after God's will. He's following in his father's footsteps. And there's something just in here, and you might want to just be following some of this text with me if you have a Bible, because I'm gonna do a bit of jumping around. It's worth seeing some of the context as I read little bits. But verse three says this, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except, here's just a little aside, that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. It's just a, a little aside in a chapter which is actually largely very positive and very famous because of what comes later. We'll read what comes later. And it wasn't an uncommon practice for Israelites to worship on the high places because there wasn't a temple for them to worship at yet. But this, by this point in, in history, God made it quite clear what he thought about that kind of worship because it pointed towards Canaanite pagan worship. And so Leviticus 26 forbids it directly. He's like, do not worship me in this way. Do not worship in the high places. And you could almost miss that. It's just a little aside, isn't it? It's just a few words. But right there, the outset of Solomon's reign is this compromise in his worship, in his decision-making. Just a small thing. 
And then the story continues, continuing in chapter three. And this chapter then starts to lay out the first of Solomon's direct encounters with God. So let's read some of this together, looking from verse six. God asked Solomon, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. And Solomon replies, a famous reply. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I am only a little child. Verse nine then. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, it's a little dig at uh, David's final dying wish, isn't it? You haven't asked for those things, but instead you have asked for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience with me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So God is pleased with Solomon's request and gives him the wisdom that he asked for. And the key thing is the motivation behind why he asked for wisdom. Isn't it? He doesn't ask it just so that he might be famous or no more. He asks for wisdom because he recognizes that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's like, I'm still a child and you've given me this big task to lead your people. And so he asks God to give him discernment, a discerning heart, and God gives him that and in fact, Solomon himself acknowledges that that's the beginning of all wisdom, is recognizing dependence on God. He says it in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's a wisdom that finds its origins in God. It's only true in so much as Solomon remains in dependence on God. So it's important to hold on to that. But that's where he begins. God also, as he promises to, he adds honor and wealth to Solomon's blessing, and that becomes true. And we read about that in the next few chapters. Solomon rules wisely. He becomes the wisest, wealthiest, most famous king who has ever lived. In fact, if you do the calculation of how much he was worth, in modern language, it's trillions and trillions of pounds. He was a very, very wealthy king. And as we continue to then follow on his journey, for the next seven years, he builds the temple. Again, it's another huge thing. There's lots of big moments in Solomon's story. He builds the temple. It was his father David's building plans. And the next few chapters of 1 Kings follows the detail of that design, which if you wanted to do a bit of reading on it, it's really interesting to do that while looking for symbolism of the Garden of Eden because it's littered throughout the temple designs, which is quite cool. We don't have time to do that, sorry. But what we're going to do now is we're going to jump in to 11 years on in Solomon's reign, the temple has just been completed. The Ark of the Covenant has been placed in the Holy of Holies and God's presence has filled the temple. So it's this amazing moment for the Israelite people. Finally, the temple is built. Finally, God's presence is amongst us. And Solomon prays to God, asking for God to be present and also honoring God's presence in that environment. And then we reach chapter nine, where it says, where God responds again. This is the second time now, 11, year late, 11 years later, that God speaks to Solomon. In the first few verses, God talks about what he thinks of the temple. And then from verse four, he addresses Solomon directly. And he gives him a promise and a warning. The warning's new. He says, as for you, if you continue to follow in obedience with me, it's the same promise again, 
then things will go well. But from verse 6, but, this is new, if you or your descendants turn away, then, I'm just skipping through bits here, but I will cut off Israel. This temple that you just built, as grand as it is, will all be rubble, a heap of rubble. All who pass will be appalled, and all will know that God's people abandon God. And so what he's saying is none of what you've just achieved, despite how grand it might look, will matter if you turn away from me. Second Chronicles 7 also actually talks about this same moment. And in it, there's an extra verse, extra words that God says to Solomon in, 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 this, in his response. And it's a verse that many of us know really well. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from, hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's just interesting to know that that's God's first response at this, what we'd assume to be quite a high moment for the Israelite people, isn't it? This is like a peak moment. They've just finished building the temple. God's presence has just filled it. There should be like just all celebration, all excitement. And God is keen to say, if you turn away from me, here is the route to repentance. But if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. And so I wonder that there's something here. There's something that shifted in Solomon's heart as he leads the Israelites that suggests that despite how good things look, despite how much he's achieved and accomplished in these 11 years, that there's a danger that his heart is shifting away from God. And God is calling him, waking him up to that. But then in the next two chapters, what we discover is, and if you, you, can, keep, you can scan it with me if you want, in chapters 10 and 11, we just, this spans a couple of decades. And in that time, we start to notice that Solomon's motivations and actions become more clearly distant from God. He continues to build on his wealth and his fame, which is what God promised would come to him. But the way he goes about it it changes. He also starts to receive the kind of the accolade of being really wise as a king from very prominent figures who come and visit him. He builds bigger palaces for himself. He builds on this kind of different strategic ways of building on his gold and silver. And he starts to even bring in slave labor to build on some of his future projects. And what you start to notice just in his story is that what started as a gift and even as a blessing from God becomes things he grasps at for his own gain. Wealth, power, fame, possessions. But unless you're looking for it, even in chapter 10, it doesn't necessarily look like it's all bad. Because as I was saying, it's stuff that God promised that would be true for his life. That that he would be wealthy and wise and famous. It's not necessarily suggested that it's bad. But for any Jews who are reading this passage in scripture, they would immediately be drawn to another passage in scripture, Deuteronomy 17. Because the words are almost exactly the same. Deuteronomy 17 sets out what it looks like to be a king who follows God. And it lists these things. And I'm just, gonna, I'm just summarizing it here, but you'll see it on the screen beside me. Verse 16 says, do not acquire great numbers of horses. It also says, do not return to Egypt to buy those horses or chariots. Verse 17 says, do not take many wives or your heart will be led astray. Verse 17 also says, do not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And verse 19 says, revere the Lord and follow his laws carefully. A sense of God warning against power around allegiances with God's enemy, divided attention, self-centered wealth. And what does Solomon do? Looking at chapter 10, verse 26, accumulates horses. From where? Egypt. Verse 25, he accumulates more and more silver and gold. 
chapter 11, verse 3, by this stage he has taken 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so he clearly hasn't revered the Lord and followed his laws carefully. In fact, he's broken every command that Deuteronomy 17 gives on how a king should behave. And so we know at this point things are turning sour, that things are going downhill. But it's important, again, just to note that until this point, it would have been kind of quite hard to notice where the, unless you're looking at it as we have been today, you wouldn't have expected this point to happen. But we have begun to track that there's some things that, that Solomon hasn't heeded, God's warnings that he hasn't listened to. And actually, a lot of what he has accomplished looks really good. He's accomplished great things, isn't he? He's become wise, wealthy, powerful in the ways that God promised. He's even built the temple where the presence of the living God is dwelling. I mean, that's something for your CV, isn't it? Like, that's a fairly impressive accomplishment. But we can see now, as we look at it, and we look at his story, the patterns in his life that weren't kept in check, times when he didn't heed God's warning. And those things slowly drove a wedge between him and the ways of God. And then at the end of his life, he has this significant public failing, and it ruins him and devastates the Israelite people. So we're going to just read that section together in chapter 11 from verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was fully, not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place. Interesting. That was one of the first things he did, wasn't it? It was worship in high places, and he continues to do that. He builds a high place, and he worships Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to these gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he'd forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so in his old age, his heart becomes divided and eventually is turned away from God towards his own status, conquests, and possessions. It would seem that the wisest man in history is led astray. And we're not just talking small things here. The worship of Moloch is child sacrifice. That was the kinds of stuff that he got into at the end of his life, which I made the mistake of reading about some of the practices of the cult of Moloch, and it is not worth reading. It's not good reading. It's a very slow, painful suffering that his children would have gone through. It's a complete departure from the ways of God, and it rightly angers God. Things don't go well for Solomon from here. And actually this chapter sets a trajectory which will eventually lead to exile for the Israelites. And so it's fair to say that Solomon didn't finish well. Is that fair? <laughs> he didn't finish well. So what do we do with a story like this? What do we do with Solomon's story? Well, I think we need to be careful not to just jump straight into parallels and to put ourselves fully in his story because so much of the context is different to our context. Solomon is a king, for one thing, and also he's under the old covenant. And his life as a king is put in, in this point in scripture to, in order to direct us towards our need for Jesus, for a king that will walk in perfect obedience where our humanity fails, a king who will show God's people the way to live and represent his people to God the Father. 
And so our initial response as we read a story like Solomon's is like unexpectedly actually one of thankfulness because we know that king. We follow Jesus and he perfectly modeled obedience. He's perfectly obedient to his father on our behalf. We don't have to suffer judgment for our sin because Jesus did it for us. We don't have to live perfect lives because Jesus did it on our behalf. But what does remain true for Solomon and I think for our stories is that God is just as interested in the condition of our hearts, which is why we've used the, the, the title of Heart Stories this month, because it's true that God is still just as interested in the condition of our hearts. And there are two ways that I can see as we read the life of Solomon that is true for us too. The first of these is God is more interested in our heart than our achievements. God is more interested in our heart than our achievements. When you look at some of what God said to Solomon through his life in the, in the passages we've read together, it's interesting that when you, just, when you distill down what the primary content God was saying to Solomon in his life was, firstly, he named him as Jedidiah. So in every address with Solomon, he was saying, my beloved, that's a starting point, walk closely with me. That's what God asked of Solomon. That was what is, uh, he was d- determined that Solomon's heart would be set after knowing he is the beloved and walking in step with God. And that's what God reiterates. And he adds warnings if you don't do that. But that is the, the distilled version of what God says to Solomon. But what he starts to go after is achieving great things instead of looking after his heart. And he does. It's pretty successful, the stuff that he goes after. As I said already, the wisest man on earth, the wealthiest man in history, the man who built the temple that God dwells in. That's pretty big achievements. But those little foxes, the little things that that niggled away at his heart went unchecked. Even things that initially started as God's promise and blessing and good gifts, when he pursued them without God, they turned his heart away from him. Solomon lived an external life of impressive achievements, but had a heart that became compromised. And in the end, those successes didn't matter. For us, we, I wonder we can be just as tempted to do the same thing. We can flip our pursuit of Jesus in its head and we can try and go after doing great things and not consider the condition of our hearts. We, we can do that ourselves. And also, we sometimes look to others and look for the, the attributes in others, which is similar. We look for the leaders who are accomplishing great things for God and then seek to follow them but don't necessarily discern whether their hearts are after God's. And I think, as a key aside, it's very hard to determine the heart posture of people from far away, particularly on platforms, on social media. <laughs> and we're discovering that. Don referenced that last week when he talked through the fact that we live in a time where a lot of this is being brought to light, where people who were carried significant influence, who were respected internationally, who had this big, life-changing vision, had beneath the surface not dealt with stuff in their hearts and it led to very bad decisions and to crumbling of much of what they accomplished in God. It's sadly now quite a familiar story for us, isn't it? God is more interested in our hearts than in our achievements. We have just heard some amazing baptism stories, haven't we? And those stories are one of the amazing things about hearing baptism stories, the same thing I prayed earlier, is that it should remind us of our own baptism story, 
of what it means to follow Jesus is we say, yes, we're in for this. We believe God is who he says he is. We want to walk closely with him. And also, at baptism, we're reminded that God continues to say over us, we are his beloved, whom he is well pleased. That's not just something we do once. We don't just do that at some point in our story and then move on to something else. That, we are, that is our identity now as the baptized. We are the beloved of God who are called to walk and step with him. God is much more interested in us sustaining that heart posture towards him than us going on to achieve massive things for him. God is more interested in your heart than your achievements. And secondly and finally, God isn't looking for perfection, but he is looking for people who are open to his correction. Solomon didn't watch for little foxes in his life. He let them do this deep work which eventually toppled everything that he'd achieved and his love for God. And I wonder, similarly, there's a reason why Jesus teaches us to pray these words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, is that he wants us to be open to reality that all of us in big and small ways sin regularly. All of us, our hearts can be turned away from God easily and we need each and every day to be reminded of that so that we can receive God's forgiveness again and again. And God wants us to do that because those things, when they're left unchecked, when we don't bring them before God, when we don't receive his forgiveness, they start to grow and fester in our lives. When we don't receive his forgiveness, they nibble away at our love for Jesus. And the big things that pull Solomon down nibble by nibble are the same things that can pull us down wealth, power, possessions, relationships, all of them can be battlefields for our heart. And we need to be so careful to continue to give them back to God. Because when we shrug them off, just those little niggles, those moments where we realize, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I should have done that, or I'm not sure if I should have said that, or I'm, um, that's not, I'm not sure if Jesus would have wanted that. When we don't choose to bring that back to God and receive forgiveness in those things, when we leave them unchecked, they can slowly eat away at our love and joy as we follow Jesus. God isn't looking for perfection, but he is looking for people who are open to his correction. Just to land us, I had the sense that God was wanting to continue something amongst us that he started last week, um, was bringing some things maybe into the light that, that we haven't really brought to him before or haven't for a while. Maybe little things that have niggled away our love for God. And I had a sense that he was stirring that in us so that we might renew, know a renewed invitation to walk closely with him as his beloved children. And the amazing thing about following Jesus is that when we choose to do that, when we choose to turn back towards him, we are always met with grace. Because of his work, because of his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, God is more interested in having our hearts and us achieving great things for him. God is not interested in attempts at perfection, but he wants hearts that are open to his loving correction as we follow him. There's a song that was written recently, which um, I want to just read some of the words over us just as we close and as I pray for us, which speaks to some of this. Um, maybe you want to stand with me if you're able, and uh, just as I pray to finish. Because just as I was been praying for this week, I had a sense that, it was, that some of that was um, 
like what God wanted to do was lift the burden of perfection off of our shoulders, but also draw us towards a closer walking with him. And so these are the words that I just want to say them over. And if it feels like these, they connect with you, allow God to lift the burden of some of these things off your shoulders. It's never been about performance, perfection, or striving for acceptance. Let me tell you, it's only by his blood. It's never been about deserving or earning. It's a gift that's freely given. Let me tell you, it's only by his blood. Does anybody want to be holy, righteous, purified, and spotless? Let me tell you, it is only by his blood. Does anybody want to be worthy, forgiven, justified, really living? Let me tell you, it's only by his blood. So Jesus, this morning we want to say thank you to you again for the work that you've done and are doing in our lives that mean that we don't need to be perfect in our own strength. We don't need to strive after your acceptance that we can know again in this moment that we are your beloved, that we are your children. Would you soften our hearts again to places where that has maybe grown cold, where things have just nibbled away our love for you, God, would you renew that as we receive your love afresh? Would you reveal the depths of your love for us again this morning? And God, I ask alongside that that you would continue this work of helping us to bring things into the light. Maybe it's, it's small things that you've, we've begun to notice again in our own lives and the things that we say and the things that we've done that we know, we've known you're your kind of niggling at us to bring them to you. God, would you help us do that today? To turn back and step with you. To know your forgiveness again. And we ask open-handed again this morning, just as Psalm 139 says, would you reveal to us anything in our lives that is not of you and lead us in your ways everlasting. Amen.